Welcome to Spiritual Warfare. My name is Teresa. Hi, my name's Kay. And we will be reading from the Book of Signs by Dr. David Jeremiah, starting off with The Avenging of Christ. The book of Revelation is divided into three sections. At the beginning of the book, we are introduced to the world ruined by humanity. As we move to the latter half of the tribulation period, we witness the world ruled by Satan. But now as we come to Christ's return at the end of the tribulation period, we see the world reclaimed by Christ. Reclaiming the earth, however, is not merely a simple matter of Christ stepping in and planting his flag. Before the earth can be reclaimed, it must be cleansed. You wouldn't move back into a house infested with rats without first exterminating and cleaning it up. That is what Christ must do before he reclaims the earth. All rebellion must be rooted out. He must avenge the damage done to his perfect creation by wiping the rebels from the face of the earth. The last verses of Revelation 19 give us an account of this purging and cleansing, and each step in the process is a dramatic story within itself. Let's briefly examine these avenging acts that will cleanse and reclaim the earth. The fowls of heaven in the classic Alfred Hitchcock film. <laughs> the birds, oh my gosh, I remember that movie. Wow. Yeah, no kidding. Nightmares. A coastal California town is terrorized by the escalating attacks of vicious birds. Throughout the film, the terror increases to the point that birds merely sitting in rows on highline wires look anonymous and foreboding. Instead of closing the film with this typical the end, Hitchcock simply fades the screen to black, leaving the viewer with a lingering sense of terror as he drives from the theater and sees birds sitting on the high wires in his neighborhood. As horrifying as the story is, it pales in comparison to the grisly bird scene that John unveiled. Then I saw an angel staying in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Woohoo! You may eat the flesh of kings the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Words are hardly adequate to describe the horror of this appalling scene. The fowl of the earth's air all gather at Armageddon, to feast upon the massive piles of human flesh that will litter the battlefields for miles upon miles. What? Read that again. Okay. Words are hardly adequate to describe the horror of this appalling scene. The fowl of the earth's air all gather at Armageddon to feast upon the massive piles of human flesh that will litter the battlefield for miles upon miles. The word translated fowl or birds is found only three times in the Bible. Twice here in Revelation 19, verses 17 and 21, and once more in Revelation 18, 2. It is the Greek, it is the Greek word orneon, which designates a scavenger bird 
that is best translated into English as vulture. Oh, those are nasty, nasty birds. In John's vision, the angels calling the vultures of the earth, Tarmageddon, to the supper of the great God, where they will feast on the fallen caucuses of the enemies of the Lord. The text says that these corpses include both great and small, kings and generals, bond and free. The foes of heaven. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Could there be anything more futile than creatures fighting against the creator? Then little man stuck on the tiny planet floating in the immeasurable cosmos, striking back at the creator of the universe. Yet, Futility is not beyond hearts turned away from God. John warned that the beast and the frost prophet will persuade the armies of the earth to go to war against Christ and the armies of heaven. It's like persuading mice to declare war against the lions. (laughs) Oh my goodness. This final war will be the culmination of all the rebellion that the men have leveled against Almighty God from the beginning of time, and there's not one iota of doubt about the outcome. The fatality of the beast and the false prophet. The Bible tells us that God simply snatches up the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet and flings him into the fiery lake. Whoa, Can I can okay. just picture that. Wow. So, I have a little bit of information here. Okay. That there's a difference between hell and the fiery lake. Okay. Yes. The fiery lake is where, in the end, all people are thrown into. That hell is like the in-between. Oh, so when they die their spirit, if they're not Christians, they go to hell. But in the end, they will be thrown into the the fiery fiery lake. Oh, okay. Thank you. Then the beast was captured and with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone these two evil creatures have the unwanted honor of actually getting to hell before satan whose confinement occurs much later the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever And ever. And ever. Satan does not join the beast and the false prophet there until the end of the millennium. One thousand years years later. later. Note that two men are taken alive. These two men are cast alive into lake burning with fire and brimstone. Where a thousand years later they are said to be suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. The lake of fire is neither annihilation nor purgatorial because it neither annihilates nor purifies these two fallen foes of God and man after a thousand years under judgment. The finality of Christ's victory over rebellion. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. 
Here is how John F. Walvoord described the victory. When Christ returns at the end of the tribulation period, the armies that have been fighting with each other for power will have invaded the city of Jerusalem and will have engaged in house-to-house fighting. When the glory of the second coming of Christ appears in the heavens, however, these soldiers will forget their contest for power on earth and will turn to fight the army from heaven. Yet, Their best efforts will be futile because Christ will smite them with the sword in his mouth and they will be killed along with their horses. Mm. The application of Christ's second coming, in spite of the high value I placed on understanding future events, I find that studying prophecy has an even higher and more practical value. It provides a compelling motivation for living the Christian life. The immediacy of prophetic events show the need to live each moment in Christ-like readiness. Kay, there's so many people who think that it's years and years. We don't, nobody knows, and it says it, and I don't know if it will happen in our lifetime. I really don't. But there's so many people who aren't preparing their life for Christ. And it's so sad because you don't know when you walk out the door if it's going to be your last day on earth. There's no coming back. There's no second chances. Once you die, your destination is set. That's right. And you better be ready. So I don't know why we hanky-pank around. I know. I wonder why because... Satan. I believe believe it's deceitfulness in in the lore of Satan. Well, you know. This won't hurt just a little. Yeah. Well, you know. You know. No. But it does, Kay. Then we get trapped and we wow. keep falling deeper and deeper into well, we sin can. when we think, oh, yeah. this well, we one can. little thing won't hurt. Oh, but it can. As revered Southern Baptist evangelistic Vance Havner has put it, the devil has colorformed the atmosphere of this age. Chloroformed. Chloroformed. So, like. Isn't yeah. that crazy? Well, you know, That's how say? you. Yes, yeah, yes, right. yes. Yes. The devil has chloroformed the atmosphere of this age therefore in view of the sure promises of christ's return as believers we are to do more than merely be ready we're to be expectant in our day of anarchy apostasy and of apathy habner suggests that expectant living means we need to take down our do not disturb signs (laughs) snap out of our stupor and come out of our coma and awake from apathy habner reminds us that god's word calls us to awake out of our sleep and to walk in righteousness and the light that Christ gives us. Not only that, Kay, we are responsible for the people around us. We will be judged for that. Did we show love? Did we give to people in need? Did we help build a church? Did we forgive? Did we truly, truly forgive? We still harbor in our heart We are called to do this. That's what we were created for on this earth. Yeah. Yes. We get sidetracked by that. We put up our do not disturb sign. And we do. And we live for ourselves. Yes. We do. And we need to be living for God and praying for the people who really need prayer. And God's put them in our path for a reason. Exactly. Right. So there, we, nothing yeah. is coincidence, Kay. Right. If something comes in your path, 
God's going to say, hmm, I wonder how my child Kay's going to handle this today. Is she too busy? Is she going to walk by this person in need? Is she not going to say hello? Is she going to talk to somebody who's crying or see somebody struggling in the supermarket with her children? There's so many things. There's so many things. So, so many things. Prophecy can provide the wake-up call that Dr. Havner calls for. When we have heard and understood the truth of Christ's promised return, we cannot just keep living our lives the same old way. Future events have present implications that we cannot ignore. When we know that Christ is coming again to this earth, we cannot go on being the same people. One of the finest stories I've ever heard about men longing for their leaders return is that of an explorer-adventurer, Sir Ernest Shackleton. On Saturday, August 8th of 1914, one week after Germany declared war on Russia, 29 men set sail on a three-mast wooden ship from Plymouth, England to our Antarctica on a quest to become the first adventurist to cross the Antarctica the Antarctic continent on foot. Sir Ernest Shackleton had recruited the men through an advertisement. Men wanted for hazardous (laughs) journey. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful. Oh, goodness. Honor and recognition in case of success. Not only was Shackleton an honest man, for the men did experience all this handbill promised. But he was also an able leader and a certified hero. His men came to refer him, refer to him as a boss. Although he never thought of himself that way, he worked as hard as any crew member and built solid team unity aboard the ship and named aptly named Endurance. Wow. In January of 1915, the ship became entrapped in an ice pack and ultimately sank, leaving the men to set up camp on an ice floe, a flat, free-flowing slice of sea ice. Wow. Shackleton kept the men busy day by day and entertained by night. They played ice soccer, <laughs> had nightly song fest, and held regular sled dog competitions. It was in the ice flow camp that Shackleton proved his greatest as a leader. He willingly sacrificed his right to a warmer, full-lined sleeping bag. Not one of his men might have it, and he personally served hot milk to his men and their tents every morning. In April of 1916, their thinning ice flow threatened to break apart, forcing the men to seek refuge on a nearby elephant island. Knowing that a rescue from such a desolate island was unlikely, Shackleton and five others left to cross 800 miles for open Antarctic Sea, and a 20-foot lifeboat was more of a hope than a promise of a return with rescuers. Finally, on August 30th, after an arduous 105-day trip, the three earlier attempts, Shackleton returned to rescue his stranded crew, becoming their hero. Oh, how cool! Perhaps the real hero in the story is Frank Wilde, second in command. Wilde was left in charge of the camp in Shackleton's absence. He maintained the routine the boss had established. 
He assigned daily duties, served meals, held sing-alongs, planned athletic competitions, and generally kept up the morale because the camp was in constant danger of being buried by snow and becoming completely invisible from the sea so that the rescue party might look for it in vain. Wild kept the men busy shoveling away drifts. The firing of a gun was to be the pre-arranged signal that the rescue ship was near the island, but as Wild reported, many times when the glaciers were culving and chunks fell off with the report like a gun, we thought that it was the real thing. And after a time, we got to to distrust these signals, but he never lost hope in the return of the boss. Confidently, Wild kept the last tin of kerosene and a supply of dry combustibles ready to ignite instantly for use of a locator signal when the day of wonders would arrive. Barely four days worth of rations remained in the camp when Shackleton finally arrived on a Chilean icebreaker. He personally made several trips through the icy waters in a small lifeboat in order to ferry his crew to safely. Miraculously, the leaden fog lifted long enough for all the men to make it to the icebreaker in one hour. Shackleton later learned from the men how they were prepared to break camp so quickly and reported. From a fortnight after I had left, Wilde would roll up his sleeping bag each day with the remark, get your things ready, boys. The boss may come today. And sure enough, one day the mist opened and revealed the ship for which they had been waiting and longing and hoping for over four months. Wild's cheerful anticipation proved infectious, and all were prepared when the evacuation day came. Shackleton's stranded crew desperately hoped for hoped that their leader would come back to them, and they longed for his return. But as diligent and dedicated as Shackleton was, they could not be certain he would return. He was, after all, a mere man battling elements he could not control, so they knew he might not make it back. Unlike that desperate crew, we have a certain promise that the Lord will return. Ours is not a mere longing or a desperate hope as theirs was, for our Lord is the creator and master of all, and his promise is as sure as his very existence. The prophets, the angels, and the apostle John all echo the words of promise from Jesus himself that he will return. God's word further amplifies the promise by giving us clues and prophecy to help us identify the signs that his return is close at hand. As we anticipate his return, we are not to foolishly set dates leave our jobs and homes to wait for him on some mountain. We are to remain busy doing work set before us, living in love and serving in ministry. Even when the days grow dark and the nights long, be encouraged by anticipating we are secure, we belong to Christ. And as the old gospel song says, soon and very soon, 
we are going to see the king. Well, Miss Kay, we are going to end with that. Is there anything else that you would like to share before we wrap up today? It is going to be one glorious day, and I'm just going to encourage everybody listening today, be ready. Be ready as as, um, these shipmen were encouraged. Be ready, because we do not know the day or the time that Jesus is going to return. But sure enough, he's going to. Not only that, Kay, I think some people look at it that they're in something and they can't go to God. You go to God as you are. It doesn't matter what you are doing in life. He will deliver you. Do not let Satan tell you that you are not good enough to go to God because you're doing this. And you're wrapped up in this and this sin and that sin. I, I don't care if you're doing 25 sins. Go to God. He loves you just as you are. He will forgive you. And he will heal you and deliver you. Yes, he can. Yes. He just desires that you be in his presence. And he does. Take the time. Take the time to have that conversation with God. Take the time to open up your Bible every day. Okay, Miss Kay. Until next time. Have a great week. God bless you.